Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the workforce fixes the government needs are right in front of our faces. Look, we get ourselves all worked up and all lathered up, and then, you know, that causes us to, like, go off in all of these different directions. And it is that kind of instability that drives the federal workforce crazy. The Zero Trust strategy says it's time for action, not words. What this administration is doing is leveraging all those pieces from the past and saying, look, we got to solve this problem. Enough is enough. Let's move forward. Let's just do this. And the GSA administrator serious about digital transformation. My shorthand I say about this all the time is we've got to make the damn websites work. When I say that, that's what I mean. It's like a foundational part of government now. It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The new Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Office at the Defense Department will be open for business next week. The Chief Data Officer of the Navy, Tom Sasala, says the office will help his service leverage and maximize the work his team does in his service. The new office will oversee the DOD's Chief Data Officer, Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, and Defense Digital Service. Federal IT dashboard will disappear soon, according to a plan from the General Services Administration. GSA says it'll replace the dashboard's functions with the IT Collect API and the Office of Government-Wide Policy Visualization Platform. The Federal IT dashboard's been around since 2009. The military health system's taking a huge step forward with its electronic health records deployment. Jackson Barnett's covering it, writing about it at fedscoop.com. Jackson, welcome. What's the big move that MHS is making with Genesis? Welcome. Well, the big thing and what officials say is the quote-unquote coin of the realm is interoperability between DOD's military health system and the VA's health system that up until now uh, and still currently those who transition from active duty in the military to a person that is uh, eligible for having veterans affairs health care, they have to take a stack of paper uh, or something that would be equivalent. There's just no way for the two systems to really talk to each other. Um, so now by moving the system to the cloud and having more modern technologies to take care of some of the records management, uh, they should be able to be you know, a little more seamless in the process. You're right. Military health care centers across Texas have received the largest deployment of the new electronic health record system. 19,000 clinicians have access to this technology. What's the difference that that will make for those clinicians? What are we learning about how they're going to be able to serve their patients better? Well, there's a lot of upgrades, especially with the the interface, the, the kind of the actual technology that the users, the clinicians uh, will be able to, to use kind of a day-to-day basis. So there also is some patient portals too. So across the board, there's just more access to the records and there's more access to technologies to manage the records. There are, you know, kind of one system versus a, a series of systems that have been kind of patched together across the country. And, and for some clinicians that uh, I've spoken with, you know, they they deal with many different systems in a day-to-day basis, you know, and, and this kind of takes it to, to one single point for them. So in essence, the idea is it'll help their workflow. There's a milestone here in your story too. You write, it's the first time the technology has been installed in a level one trauma center, according to Lidos, who leads the Lidos Partnership for Defense Health. That's a coalition of Cerner or other contractors that are involved here. What's the significance of the fact that it's being used in a setting like a level one trauma center, Jackson? 
Well, level one trauma, trauma center, um, you know, deals with some pretty severe stuff and, and particularly this trauma center also has a burn unit. Um, so the significance to patients is that the places where medical care is kind of the most critical, urgent point of need uh, will have some modern technology. Um, and for the contractors and for MHS, this needed some kind of specific capabilities that they had to develop um, as they implement the system. So essentially, you know, the idea is for everyone kind of to have the same thing, but because this trauma center deals with specific types of, of trauma, be they burns and the burn units or, or, or other things, um, they had to have some specific capabilities for, for, their, for this system. Jackson Barnett on fedsgroup.com writing about the MHS Genesis deployment. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. You can find Jackson's stories, more about these headlines and lots of others at fedsgroup.com. Monday is the deadline for comments on the Office of Management and Budget's draft learning agenda. It's part of the president's management agenda vision. Angela Bailey is founder and CEO of Ananda Life. She's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Angie, it's great to see you. What do you expect to see among the comments that people submit? What should we be looking for in this draft learning agenda in the response to it? Welcome. Oh, thank you. And Francis, as always, it's a pleasure to be here. I, you know, I think for starters, some of the things that the agencies, because of their different mission sets and stuff, they may kind of come at this a little bit differently, um, each of them, right, in how they want to address, how they want to have their, their learning agendas. But, you know, I've been giving some thought to this about, like, what are some, if, you know, if I was there again, and like, and I had the ability to like, respond on behalf of of my former agency, like what are some of the things that I would actually want to say? I don't know that these would actually <laughs> be in there, but I was thinking about that. You know, when you think about like strengthening the federal workforce, right? One of the main things that at least I discovered while I was there is that it all comes down to basic blocking and tackling. And sometimes we forget about that. And it starts with Congress passing a budget on time. Mm-hmm. Right. Because when when we don't have them doing that, for example, when um, my colleagues at DHS, me included, had to work 35 days without a paycheck, it's a little hard whenever the foundational things of what you're, you know, of, of what you're trying to support is not supporting you back. Right. And so I think that that in some ways is some of the things that and also with passing a budget on time comes programs and services. Because when the budgets aren't passed and we're in a continuing resolution, what happens is the very programs and services we want to deliver on behalf of the American public, we can't. And I don't know that people really realize that that we have to you know, maintain the status quo and can't actually move forward and do the good things um, for our workforce and for the citizens of the United States. Yeah, my challenge with the first one of these three overarching questions, my colleague Dave Nichapir writes, how to strengthen the federal workforce, how to build trust through program and service delivery, how to promote equity and support underserved communities. The first one, strengthening the federal workforce, my response to that was, duh, we've been talking about what needs to happen to do that i mean the i you know the first time i interviewed you you were at opm that was like 12 or 13 years ago i think and we were right. talking about these same basic issues fixing the hiring process how to retain good employees it's how do we break out of the same stuff to get to support this learning agenda in a way that really is constructive and and makes progress on on hitting some of these marks angie 
Yes. So, I, I mean, it all begins, honestly, with actually fun, going back to the fundamental legislation that's on the books that drives where we are today. So we can keep dinking around the edges and that's all it's going to ever be. Yep. But if you do, if Congress and this is Congress, this is an OPM, this is Congress has got to take the time to sit down, work with OPM, work with the major agencies like a DHS, a VA, a DOD, et cetera, who have boots on the ground and who completely understand what needs to be done in order to break out of this cycle of constantly saying, you know, how are we going to learn about strengthening the workforce? How are we going to retain our workforce a whole lot better? Every It's been studied for decades. Yep. Okay. What What we really need is the guts to actually do something about it. The Chico Council that I had the pleasure of working with these last six years was fantastic. They actually wrote the legislation that needed to be done. They actually submitted the legislation that needs to be done, but it doesn't ever go anywhere. And so um, I have to say that was probably one of my biggest frustrations, mm-hmm. honestly, as a Chico is to like sit there and be asked to testify. I can't tell you, as you know, how many times I was asked to come up and testify, Ange, what do you think we should do? It's like, I don't know how many different ways to tell you like what we need to do. We all can see it. It's like, we just need to actually do it. And that's, right? that's the frustration. As I go to the next paragraph of Dave's story, I have a link to it in the show notes and at mm-hmm. the daily scoop podcast.com within those three learning areas, the draft proposes a subset of additional questions like how to improve employee retention. And beyond that, another tier of even more refined example questions asking what information agency leaders need to keep employees engaged. If I remember correctly, you had that data up to your ears and the challenge was getting the resources that you needed, not from agency leaders, but again from Congress to be able to act on it. Right. We know this stuff already is the point that I'm getting at. Yeah, you know, and we just keep asking the same question. And so, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right about this. It's like um, the data is there. Look, I can go out and I can sit down with a hundred, a thousand, or ten thousand employees, and they will tell me all the same basic things. And it, and I'll say this again: it goes back to basic blocking and tackling. If you want my morale to improve, then could you just get me some copier paper? You know, so I could just do my job, right? Could you settle down the policies just enough, just enough so that I can figure out which direction and what you want me to go? And can you get me a budget on time? Not even the amount of money that I need, but on time. Could you get me a budget on time so that I can plan, I can predict, I can know what it is that I need to deliver? Um, You know, these are some of the basic things that all the employees are asking for. When you look at retention, you know, and I'm asked this question all the time, how can we retain the federal workforce? Well, the truth is, is that we do pretty much retain the federal workforce. They're not, they're not leaving in the droves of people. That's the other thing. Ever since I've been a kid in the federal government, there's this retirement tsunami, right? Yep. And it never happened. It never happens because it's a personal decision. And it's based on the economy. And it's based on so many different reasons as to why people stay or don't stay within the federal government. But number two... Some of this is not about retaining a workforce for 30 years. Some of this is about recognizing, take the cybersecurity professionals as an example. When you think about it, they're going to have a career of coming in and out of the federal government. Well, then have legislation and policies and rules and and, regulations on the books that allows for the fact that people want to come in and out of the federal government. 
you know, why do you have rules in place that force people to stay when that's not where they are personally or professionally? And so those are some of the things, again, that the Chico Council and myself, this is why we implemented CTMS, Cyber Talent Management. What did we do? We broke down all of that, right? And we said, let's actually address where the 21st century workforce is. And let's actually have some rules in place that addresses where we are, not 1929, whenever you know, it was basically clerks and in, in, in administrative. Um, quick sidebar about the uh, retirement tsunami. I had a conversation, it was like 10 years ago when I was still on the radio uh, mm-hmm. with a human capital professional in government who's gone on and on, retirement tsunami, it's the worst thing that's going to happen and it could happen any minute and all of that. And I clicked off the microphone in, in the middle of a break and I said, you know what I, I was wondering about, why, why this it hasn't happened? I said, these people, by and large, seem to indicate that they really like their jobs and they like mm-hmm. their coworkers, you know, because mm-hmm. we were talking about the latest edition of the FEVs numbers at that time. And mm-hmm. like I said, this is about 10 years ago. And I said, the numbers seem to indicate these people really like their jobs. They really buy into the mission. Um, they get good health care from the FEHBP and not just now, but over time. So they're probably in pretty decent health and they mm-hmm. can continue to work when they get into an age where they would ordinarily be uh, eligible to retire, but they just kind of like it. So they just keep going. And this person looked at me like I had three heads and said, I never really thought of it that way before. And I thought, what are you doing in this job anyway, then, if if these aren't the kinds of things that we're thinking about, instead of getting all worked up about all these people could leave tomorrow, well, they could, but they don't seem to. Right. It, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Whenever I worked for the Defense Contract Management Agency, we actually did this thing where we went through and we like looked at people's years of service. And I think, I can't remember, it was the birth date or something. So we could, so we could basically map, map out in a predictive way when they're really going to go. On average, on average, most federal employees, and this is still true to today, stay at least three to five years beyond their retirement eligibility date. I'm a prime example of that. I could have gone three years ago. I chose to stay. Why? Because I loved my job. Mm -hmm. I loved my colleagues. I loved the mission of DHS. That's why I didn't go. Why did I go now? It was just time, right? But it was a personal decision that I made. And so, yeah, I, I think, look, we get ourselves all worked up and all lathered up. And then, you know, that causes us to like go off in all of these different directions. And it is that kind of instability that drives the federal workforce crazy. Because what they're looking for is they just want a little bit of stability, right? So that so that they know that like, okay, I'm going to be able to actually carry out my job and, and I'm not going to be threatened with all these other things that are going on. I'm going to actually be able to just do my job. That, and honestly, that's not even a federal workforce issue. I think every Every person, every human being just wants to know that there's some level of stability in being able to carry out their job. All right. I apologize if I got you all juiced up, but it's just as I read this and started to think about this, I'm like, we've been talking about this stuff. I have been for 15 years and I know when I came to the conversation, it wasn't new. So I can't imagine how long some folks have been on this stuff. Um, Quick final thought. What does Mm -hmm. a successful outcome look like? Maybe it's not even this year, but whenever we see actual work toward this learning agenda, 
what do you think that looks like? Is it just the stability issue that you talked about, or are there are there more things particular to the learning agenda that you think we should see? What I hope we see is it goes beyond stability, right? To me, that's the foundation. But a learning agenda means that you're not just learning by looking in the rearview mirror, and that's what I worry about the most. Most of these things are always about what does the data tell you about what the past was, right? It, what I would love to see happen is that a learning agenda means how do you look forward? How do you how do you be predictive? How do you create maybe a couple of alternative futures? And you say, if we go this way, this way, or this way, I at least have some basic strategies in place in order to address whichever way or direction that this world is going to go in, right? And so that to me would be the success of a learning agenda is that stop looking in the, in the rear view mirror, start looking not only to today, like, but lift your head up and look out into the future and start planning for that and start implementing that, but do it in a way that's inclusive. And what I mean by that is the very people that you serve, whether it's the citizens or you know people trying to come into this country or it's our own employees, do it in a, in a way that you at least address, address their, their root issues that they have so that we can deliver things that are meaningful. Um, because I think that that gives us a sense of pride as a federal employee. And then it also, I think, builds the tr very trust um, that this agenda is trying to do with the people we serve. Angela Bailey, it's always delightful to talk to you. I'm glad we're continuing the conversation now that you're out. Appreciate you being on with me today. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. You can read more about the draft learning agenda in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Agencies have big marks and deadlines to hit in the new zero trust strategy from the Office of Management and Budget. The first deadline's only two months away. Karen Evans is partner at KE&T Partners. She's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget and former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Karen, welcome. It's good to see you again. What's your takeaway? You did say before we turn the recorder on, you've read all 29 pages of this strategy. What's your takeaway as you go through that document? Well, first, I think it's uh, it really does lay out the vision. So I think it's good that it's specific. Uh, it's, and it, it allows and gives that guidance to the agency. So OMB is pretty clear about what they want to achieve in, in all of these areas. Um, I also looked at it through my OMB lens, which I'm sure that's the reason why you asked me to uh, take another look. And I, I do find it um, interesting, and I would suggest that when OMB and Congress take a look at the president's budget, especially now since we're still under a CR and this strategy is out, that there's opportunities that Congress can be supportive of the federal agencies going forward with the resources, because this is structured. If you look at the deadlines with it, it's structured so that it can help inform the uh, 2024 submission, but it's also saying, which I thought was really kind of interesting, so I highlighted this one piece, that agencies should internally source funding for fiscal year 22 and 23 to achieve the priority goals. So that's yeah. saying, hey, you have money and <laughs> you're not going to get new money. This is your priority here. You need to give us your plan. We're going to review your plan and make sure that you've properly resourced it while we work on what needs to be done for 2024. Well, I wonder if it even says you, if it implies you have money, because uh, I'm not sure that, especially under CR, the agencies do have money, but I 
take your point that it's implying you're going to have to find the money somewhere and and essentially we're going to grade your work. Well, and it does say, hey, make use of working capital funds or the technology modernization funds. So when you start looking at working capital funds, this is where FATARA comes in, right? Mm -hmm. Did you, hey, we're trying to give agencies the tools from Congress. Did you establish these funds that allow you to do these modernization efforts? Because, you know, at the heart of this, this is really fundamentally changing the way that the federal government is going to architect their applications. And so, um, you know, if you, t when you read it and you go through, there are a couple key things that say, hey, you should really be looking at this as the internet, right? And that, so it's great. So you think about it, okay, well, when I get on my network at home, there's a certain amount of security that I do because it's my own network. But beyond that, I don't do anything, right? Like I just, go out on the highway. I'm just out on the internet. And then what ends up happening is the security happens at the application layer. And that's what this is saying. It's saying, you know, multi-factor authentication at the application layer, um, which is going to change the dynamics of the way a lot of federal agencies have their security models in place. And so this, this takes it to the next level, which I think is great. Um, and I also think what's really good about it is it's very clear that it's saying, hey, it's not just an architecture, it's not just this. Um, it's a way of doing business, right? This is a whole new business model. It's a whole new culture that the agencies have to embrace in order to be successful. You mentioned application architecture, Karen, and my colleague John Hewitt-Jones writes on fedscoop.com, CISA and GSA will collaborate to create a procurement structure for agencies that allows for a rapid acquisition of rigorous application security testing capabilities. What's your sense of what that means to the agency? And I'm going to send you back to DHS instead of sending you back to OMB. What's that mean at the agency level regarding a resource that is now available through which agencies can buy? Yeah, so think of this, um, and this memo also includes this. So if, if we really embrace what is best from commercial sector practices, right? Um, this also highlights the fact that uh, DHS also has a vulnerability disclosure platform that's available. So when you put these services up, like Microsoft has, um, has that capabilities, right? Where researchers are looking at their products online and they submit what they find. This is giving you both of those, but the, the part that I was intrigued with that article that I would want as a CIO is, hey, if I'm doing some application development in my in-house, right, like I have contractors and I have DevSecOps, which that's this is really enhancing that, I've got to have an objective third party that's going to be able to run through the test. This is like... You know, life is a circle. I started out my IT career in quality assurance. That's what they called it, right? Quality assurance. But what we were actually doing was testing applications before they went out into the field to make sure they didn't break anything. So what, what they're saying is if I'm, I'm going to really embrace Agile, I'm going to have to have some kind of testing capability that's going to allow me to make sure not only is it functionally right, but is it the security right? And so if I'm implementing multi-factor authentication at the application level, and this is talking about using the PIV card or other things like biometrics, you're going to have to make sure that they continuously work, right? And how is that going to work? Um, and then the other piece in this memo, which is really good too, 
is, um, you know, it's not like, hey, the network type of situation was you, you authenticate into the network and then you can go places. It's really taking and embracing role-based access against data access. So my role might say that I'm supposed to do certain things that allows me to have greater accessibility, right? Greater access once I'm in the network. But Based on what I actually do, maybe I shouldn't have access to data and certain data. So it's saying use all of those. And um, if you're trying to implement that all, get a plan together, get the plan approved, get the resources, you're going to have to have somebody who's going to have to help you execute. So I think it's great that the administration's trying to get that in place before they have to actually start really implementing this because you have to think about how you're going to transition there's dot connecting here in, in this document that i think is interesting too karen uh john hewitt jones writes the new document calls in the federal chief data officers council and the federal chief information security officer council within 90 days to create a joint working group on zero trust data for agencies with representatives of both councils and led by omb um the dot there that i see to be connected is to the fisma uh uh, refreshment legislation that the house has introduced that includes basically a permanent codification of the chief data officers council um so there's there's kind of it, it sounds to me like there are these pieces of a mosaic that are being put into place and it's going to turn out to be a picture of what the administration and congress wants cybersecurity broadly to look like across the executive branch am i on the right track there am i seeing well, this the right way do you think I, yeah and i do think that there's dots that are being connected like you said about the chief data officer right and so um at dhs the teach the i got had the opportunity to establish that directorate before i left and so the chief data officer is part of the cio organization so it'll be to me, it'll be a little bit easier for DHS as they go forward, right, to make sure that the dots are really fully connected. Um, I think in some of the other departments and agencies, they took a, a little bit different approach, right, because the data act and where the chief data officer was actually established that sometimes you see them sometimes in the CFO shop, which kind of causes um, an interesting dichotomy when you're going forward as well, right? And so um, that's why that CXO piece is important but you are right. And the other thing that you said, which intrigues me, is um, a picture will be formed, right? I think right now everybody has a different picture in mind. And that is part of the challenge that happens when Congress has one picture, the executive branch has another picture that they're going toward. And, um, and I am hopeful that that dialogue will arrive at a picture that we all agree upon as American citizens, right? Like this is the security posture that we want to have. But I do think um, that it's a positive that Congress wants to make changes and is getting actively engaged in what is cybersecurity. But I think what they find out fairly quickly is it's not really about cybersecurity. It's really how much risk, right? And what kind of services are we providing? And how how do we provide those services in a way that instills trust with the American people? Because still, the federal government is the largest holder of data, right? Information, all my information. Um, you don't have a choice in some cases, like with the IRS to send stuff. And so, you know, what is that right level of protection going forward so that we can maximize the use of that information. 
A bunch of deadlines in this strategy, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Karen, again, quoting from John Hewitt Jones on fedscoop.com, within 60 days of the memorandum being issued, agencies must incorporate the additional requirements identified in the document, submit an implementation plan for fiscal 22 through 24 to OMB and CISA. Within 120 days, agency CDOs have to work with their staffs to develop a set of initial categorizations for sensitive electronic documents, uh, 30 days from the public uh, publication of strategy to designate and identify a zero trust strategy implementation lead uh, and there are others um, the I mentioned the CDO council and the CISO council 90-day deadline are these all makeable or are these uh, wishful goals that if we get to them within some reasonable time after them that's still going to be okay so uh, um the ones, I think they're makeable dates. And as we started out this conversation, they're driving toward the fiscal 24 budget. So it behooves an agency to make the date. Okay. Some of the things with the CDO council and the CISO council, you know, is there some flexibility in defining what some of the data structures and, and how some of those things would work? Sure. But I, I, I would be hard pressed to see any agency miss uh, designating the lead, coming up with the plan, submitting it to CISA and saying, these are the resources that I need to have. Um, because if they don't, then you miss the boat and your examiner is going to be like, what? And so you, and the other part of this is, the pieces, and you keep you you've hit on this a couple times. The pieces are all in play at these different departments and agencies. And what this administration is doing is leveraging all those pieces from the past and saying, "Look, we got to solve this problem. Enough is enough. Let's move forward. Let's just do this." That's why some of these, um, you know, memos to some people, like I'm kind of shocked because it's 29 pages, but. It's good because, you know, it's walking that line, it's walking right up to the line of being prescriptive enough, but flexible enough for an agency to be able to make their argument about their mission. Um, I recall when you were still at OMB, when you would use the term, it behooves an agency to do it, was the <laughs> Evans way of saying you better freaking do it or, or you're going to get the hammer. So I, I make note of that just to make light of the fact that I love talking to you, Karen Evans. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You can read more about the Zero Trust strategy in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Friday's show, the Zero Trust journey at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. The CISA CIO, Robert Costello, is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The White House executive order on customer experience requires agencies to improve the digital experience citizens have with those agencies. The administrator of the General Services Administration, Robin Carnahan's, made her rallying cry about that. Make the damn websites work. In this highlight of the new episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast, she tells my colleague Billy Mitchell why she thinks that's so important. Fundamentally, government in many cases is a service delivery business. You know, it does policy, but in the end, it has to deliver something uh, for the people it serves. And we know that people's expectations about how service, how they want service delivered is completely changed. Um, we can walk down the street now and order a pair of shoes and get it delivered to our house the next day. So our expectations are completely different. You know, it used to be when you were in government, I, I remember sort of locally, 
if, if you were a mayor and you couldn't get the snow plowed when there was a snowstorm, you would lose an election, right? Because the, one of the fundamental parts of your job was to be able to get that thing done. Um, I kind of feel like that's what websites are now. Like we have got to have the, the digital interaction with government be something that people want um, and uh, that meet their expectations. My shorthand I say about this all the time is we've got to make the damn websites work. Like that's when I say that, that's what I mean. It's like a foundational part of government now. And so we've seen certainly from the past 21 months that bad delivery, non-working websites just sinks good policy, right? When the pandemic first hit and there was a big bipartisan bill, you know, trillion dollars that passed to like help people in a time of really serious need and families and, and businesses and everything across the country. Like money didn't get to the people that needed it. Why? The damn websites didn't work, right? We were relying on those to get the money to the people in need and not have it go to the wrong people. And too many times those things didn't work in the middle of that crisis. So I don't think there's much need to make a case about this. I think everybody recognizes it. Um, so the question is what you do about it. And our focus at GSA is to, you know, figure out we're the home of shared services. We are the general services administration. There are general digital services that all these government agencies need. And so we're focused on those, those kind of shared services like login services, like digital identity services, like notification services. We could go down the cloud services. There are lots of things. And so we've been doing those, but the goal is to make them all very simple and user-centered. Right? So they're easy for customers to use and also secure. So those are the things we're thinking about, how to keep things simple, shared, and secure when it comes to digital services. And you mentioned the, the Tech Modernization Fund. That, is, that was uh, got some money in the American Rescue Plan. It has been around for a little while, but got a big boost, as well as the Federal Citizen Services Fund. Uh, the, as you know, the Federal Citizen Services Fund is where a lot of those shared services are, are reside now at, at the Technology Transformation Service. And it's, it's really exciting because it lets us invest more in those. Um, USA.gov has the potential to be the federal front door, right, as we build out shared services in that place so that there's a single point of entry for the public to be able to get information uh, that they're interested in about the government. Um, so we're trying to build up those, those, uh, those activities. We've done some investing uh, of that ARP money, and there was an announcement recently about that. I don't know if you saw it, but, you know, it worked really closely with USDA, for example, um, on uh, how to process debt relief for farmers. And, you know, it changed what was a manual process that took thousands of hours of caseworkers into an automated process that reviewed this and you know was able to speed up the disbursement of money that got into the hands of farmers. Like that's a thing that we were able to do that really impacted people's lives. And you know, we're working on digital identity. That's a thing that we know is uh, is really important. And we we know that if you don't get that right, it's going to have all kinds of cascading bad impacts. And that every one of these programs needs needs to do that. And so there are lots of uh, there are lots of things you can leverage that already exist to make that a more seamless process. And then on TMF, you know, the, the thing that I'm so excited about there is um, it's kind of the first chance for technologists 
to be the ones making decisions about technology investments, if you think about it. Um, you know, the current appropriation process is really long and you have to, when you're making those requests, make a big ask because you don't, it could be a really long time, like years before you see any of that money. But technology changes fast. And so to be able to move more quickly to respond to the speed of need and the speed of change is really exciting. And that's what TMF is able to do. And so that's fantastic. And it also has a better oversight potential, right? Because just like they're, they're doing the type of due diligence that an actual investment fund would do before investing money, which doesn't always happen in government, but is super sensible um, and is the thing that we want to move towards. So a bunch of those investments have been in really important areas. Uh, obviously, improving security has been a very big one as well as you know, improving public-facing digital services and shared services. So we're excited about it. Um, I could talk about this all day. I'm sorry to go on so long. No, by all means, that's great. And you mentioned cloud, and that was another topic I wanted to focus on. GSA, I know, has been tasked with standing up a cloud BPA and marketplace by the cybersecurity executive order. Can you update us on that? Well, yes, the CyberEO has has a very big focus on cloud services and making sure those are secure. So, you know, our goal is to, uh, well, as you as you know, we have cloud.gov already uh, that a lot of government agencies are able to access. Um, that's a really cost-effective way for them to get uh, cloud infrastructure that they need. And then there's a cloud marketplace, right? Which is the idea there is to just make it simple uh, for for agencies to be able to like access this, their contracting officers who may or may not be uh, technically, you know, uh, experts uh, to be able to rely on um, uh, contracts and tools that GSA's put together. We've also been focusing a lot on FedRAMP um, to try to really improve the the timelines of getting things on the on the FedRAMP. Um, and so we think those are going to be, uh, you know, really, really, really important features. So I, I think, you know, from the EO perspective, we have a couple of goals. One is to like comply with what we need to do as an agency, but also really make it easier for our partners uh, by strengthening FedRAMP um, as, all, as well as like, you know, supply chain issues that they have to think about in these contracts as well. On the cybersecurity front, I'd like to stay there with supply chain security. It's been a major topic of conversation in the federal government in recent months and beyond that, and it's been a huge topic on the defense side with CMMC. Uh, but on the civilian side, I'd love to know, with GSA heading up a large swath of, swath of federal acquisition, what is GSA thinking about when it comes to making sure the products and services that agencies buy don't put them at risk of a cyber attack? Yeah, that's it's a great question. It's something we are thinking a lot about. Um, obviously, it's a high priority for the administration. It's a high priority for our partners on the Hill. Um, look, cybersecurity threats are not going to go away. They are constantly evolving. Um, and that means we've got to evolve along with them. And overall, you know, what that means to me is that we need to move from more of a just sort of a compliance type mindset to one where we need to continuously improve and continuously test and automate as much as possible. And so that's the way we're going to be able to mitigate uh, these risks going forward. And we have to have that built into the contracts and have that be expectations of vendors who are providing us by providing services and goods to the to the government. So 
we want to bake, we want to create contracts that bake in that kind of sensible supply chain risk management. We're working really closely uh, with the people who are experts in this over at CISA, which is great to be able to have their collaboration in this to, you know, just integrate supply chain risk management into the acquisition process completely so that it is just baked in. Um, we've also spent some time putting together a zero trust architecture buyer's guide, which we think can be really uh, useful to agencies. And, and uh, as well, you know, as we bake things in, uh, you know, Section 889 and other kinds of uh, compliance related things that really matter and we need visibility about, uh, we want to bake into these contracts as well. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan with Billy Mitchell on the new episode of Let's Talk About IT. You can find a link to listen to the entire episode and subscribe to the podcast in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire scoop news group team contributes friday on the daily scoop podcast robert costello the cio of cisa is here that show debuts tomorrow afternoon until then i'm francis rose thanks for listening <laughs>